There's a saying here in Liverpool that everyone has a tenuous link to the Beatles. This week's episode stems from mine. For me, growing up, John Lennon was the man who'd been in a group with my uncle Rod. That's Rod Davis, the Quarrymen's banjo player. Walton, where they lived, seemed like an idyllic place and very different to how many Beatles fans who are not from the city imagine it. So I asked Rod and my dad, Bernie Davis, to give us a tour of Walton Village and share something of what it was like back then. If you enjoy the podcast and want to help us grow and reach more Beatles fans, make sure you rate, review and subscribe to the Beatles City podcast. I'm Laura Davis. And I'm Ellen Kerwin. And this is Beatles City. So, Laura, you must have heard a lot about all this growing up. Well, definitely a lot about Walden Village, um, probably a lot less about the Beatles. Um, so there are actually things that I've discovered in books about my family um, and then I've had to go and find out whether it was true. So I remember at school reading a book about the Beatles in a music class and it talked about how my grandfather um, actually took them to the quarrymen to gigs sometimes and that was nothing that I'd heard before. So I wouldn't say that my family spent a lot of time talking about the Beatles and the quarrymen, but my um, my dad's side of the family all have amazing stories and they're stories that go back several generations. So um, I definitely heard a lot about the village and village life. And were there any sort of special moments when you did do the tour around Walton? Yeah, I mean, probably my special moments will be different to people listening to the podcast Um because um, we looked at Eleanor Rigby's grave, which was really interesting, but my great-grandparents' grave is just a few rows along. Um, we also went to the village hall opposite St Peter's Church, which is where the quarrymen paid, played their gig in the evening of St Peter's Church fate, and that's where John Lennon and Paul McCartney met. But for me, in terms of our family stories, that was a place where my grandma was a member of the Walton Follies and she would put on a dance show there. And there's actually a picture on the wall at the moment, which my grandfather took um, of her leaping through the air. Her feet are actually above the stage, um, dressed as a fairy godmother. So for me, it's a place of enormous personal significance, as well as being a place that was so important in music history. So we're in Walton Village in the grounds of um, St Peter's Church and I'm here with Rod Davis, who's my uncle, who is in the Quarrymen, and my dad, Bernie Davis, and both of them went to um, school with John Lennon. So can you tell us a bit about what Walton would have been like back when you were growing up here? Well, it was very much a village and uh, it hadn't really uh, absorbed the fact that it was now part of Liverpool. We were still... It was still a village village feeling we used to call it the village uh, when we went shopping we walked up the hill up up the village we used to say I'm going up the village and uh, my mother who'd been born here uh, when the place was really quite small she knew just about everybody that was anybody and she lived in a number of number of streets all around the place and uh, it was uh, you know it was like having your own personal guide when you were out with your mum. It was quite interesting, really. Because the reason we wanted to do this was that I've obviously grown up with you and Dad telling us all the stories of what it was like growing up in Walton, and they're still very vivid in, in your mind. You've obviously been around the world with the Quarrymen. Do you think that people realise what it was like when Lennon was growing up here? Well, I think that it comes as a shock, not a nasty shock. I think they're expecting dark satanic factories and stuff like that when they come here. Even even in the 50s, of course, it was it was a really nice place to be. But 
over the last uh, 60 odd years, so many beautiful big trees have grown up and it's so green. You know, we have American friends, I can't believe the place is so beautiful. You know, <laughs> working class hero, they were, they were expecting, uh, you know, something like the back streets of Detroit, I think, when they come in. So they, get, they do get a nasty shock, but in a very nice way. But it shatters all their illusions. But then again, with the quarrymen, we spend an awful lot of time shattering people's illusions about about uh, what it was like, you know, about what the, what how the quarrymen started and all that kind of thing. Wilton in the 1950s was still an organic community. We were still, like Rod was saying, qu- quite separate from from Liverpool geographically because we're surrounded by parks, and um, uh, the village itself was was very self-contained and very inward-looking, really. I don't remember going into Liverpool more than a couple of times before I was about 15. We, we just... We did everything here, didn't we? The life centred around the, the village itself. And there weren't, obviously, very many cars back in those days. No, there weren't many at all. We used to go everywhere on our bikes, didn't we? Bikes were a huge thing, really because we used to go to school on our bikes and we used to go over to Speak Airport to watch the planes and we used to go train spotting on the railway lines on, all on our bikes. Otherwise, you, we went on the buses, didn't we, into town? Well, I'm a bit older than my brother here and I remember going in and out of town uh, with my granddad on on the old trams, which uh, on the on the the first on the upper deck had an open open bit at each end. I think they were sort of maroon coloured, and I remember going along. I have a vivid vivid picture of travelling along past Calderstones Park, talking to my granddad. So uh, I do remember going in and out. And then, of course, the trams finished in Walton. The the uh, the terminus was at the top of King's Drive, down there, and uh, one of the biggest events in history in Walden was when one of these beautiful big green green goddess trams actually caught fire and uh, that was that was uh, like the best thing since sliced bread really it was really exciting having the tram catching fire yeah it was it was the end of the line basically and uh, people used to come out from from town as we called it and of course kids that lived in town we we call them townies because they they spoke very differently from us and on our side of the hill you could you could see into lancashire you could see the slag heaps of cronton colliery and i have a very clear recollection i was playing playing out as we say playing on the on the the bank in front of our house and this kid comes down the hill and uh says to me hey lad what are them mountains so i said they're not mountains that's a slag heap mate <laughs> so uh you know it was it was pretty rural my dad used to say the people down the road people down the road into Lancashire, they used to put seven spuds on the on the window ledge every day and take one off, so they knew what day it was. <laughs> yeah, we, were, we were surrounded by by uh, farmland as well. If you went to the bottom of King's Drive, as it is now, the uh, basically it was farmland from there all the way over up virtually to Highton, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, the, there was some the new building down at Belle Vale. But, but we were really uh, farmland everywhere. And if you went down to Gattaca and along to Chilwell, again, uh, you could look down from Chilwell Lane there and, and you could look right across to Highton. And it was just farm. Going to we, we went to Springwood School in Allerton, which is a short bus ride away. 
and sometimes we were late for school because the cows were being brought in from the fields between us and, and Allerton, weren't yeah, they, to, uh, to be milked in well, the morning. When we started going to Springwood School, Mum used to push you as a baby in the pram or walk all the way to Allerton and then come and collect us in the evening. It was a heck of a, <laughs> heck of a trek for, for a, a woman with a baby in a pram. How long from, would that have taken? I have no idea, I have no idea. A good, good 20 minutes or more, good 20 mm. minutes, maybe even half an hour. Yeah, we were. When you think about it, we're talking about how isolated this was. We don't really speak with a Liverpool accent. That's because round here people didn't. We were we were still very separate from Liverpool, so it was much more of a of a, a southwest Lang Saxon, wasn't it? I mean, lots of people had commented on this over the years. Yeah, it happens all the time. It was. We were we were doing an interview. We had that, we had a whole bunch of the quarrymen in Vancouver in Canada. And uh, somebody, uh, the interviewer, uh, did a very good interview with us and she said, yes, but you guys have all changed your accents, haven't you? And we looked at each other and thought, well, I've lived down south for a long time, Pete Shotton had, Eric Griffiths lived in Scotland, Colin was born in Bootle and never moved from Liverpool in his life. And then I said, ah, you're expecting us to all sound like Brookside, aren't you? She said, yes, well, of course, you know, because that was, that was a very popular programme on the television in Canada. And uh, so I had to give them my 30-minute lecture on, on uh, the development of, uh, development of the Scouse accent. Well, the thing was as well, I mean, we actually used a lot of expressions which were Lancashire expressions. Some of them we pronounced with a Lancashire accent, but I was never aware at the time that we were using a Lancashire accent. Like uh, Gattaca Brow, we used to, Rose Brown Gattaca, we used to call it uh, Gattaca Brew, uh, which is a Lancashire accent, but I was never aware of that. And then things like, um, we used to talk about uh, horse flies, we used to call them clegs. And... Um, if we, if you were very, very busy, and you, were, what we nowadays you might say you were snowed under with work, we used to say you were snooed out with. Um, there were lots of these actually. I can't think of them all off the top of my head. Don't use them now. I've never heard you use them. Well, I don't know. Uh, now he lives in Ersbo. Well, <laughs> well, it's not. Well, you see, the thing is. Uh, you wouldn't understand what we were talking no, about. We have, to, we have to speak received pronunciation English now so people well, understand well, it. Well, you have to remember that, that... It sounds a bit odd, but, you see, we, 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 we went to a grammar school, so the pressure were, there was a certain pressure to speak standard received, received standard English, wasn't there? You had to learn to write it. If you're going to go very far in education at all, you know, you had to speak standard English and write standard English. So you English. couldn't say clags and quarry back. Well, you could, but nobody knew what you were talking about because they weren't all from around here either. No, we had a French, we had a French teacher. Um, uh, the word came, the expression came up, laver la vaisselle, faire la vaisselle in French. And he said that means wash the pots, and we all fell about laughing because for us pots are chamber pots, you know. Uh-huh. But we said we don't say that, so we say wash the dishes. Well, he was Harry Dorch was from Sheffield, so that was the Sheffield expression, washing the pots, that uh, caused great, great hilarity with us. So where we are, the church is is obviously built of sandstone, and that's something that I think really makes Walton stand out from a lot of the rest of Liverpool or the South Liverpool stand out from a lot of the rest of Liverpool, is all the sandstone walls that we've got everywhere. Is that something that you remember from childhood? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, um, the red sandstone here, it, it's everywhere. The house our grandmother lived in, 
all the, uh, I was surprised, the gutters at the top of the house were made of sandstone and all the, uh, the, the drains, at the bottom of the drains, where nowadays you'd have a plastic grid, they, they, they had these beautiful turned sandstone inserts that went in there. The, uh, and the, the, the quarry itself was something that you were all aware of, all, weren't you, all the time, yeah, really? Yeah, the blasting occasionally. Yeah, and there used to be a big crane up the top there, wasn't there? Yeah. The whole, I mean, the whole of the hill here is one great big lump of sandstone. Uh, and even Quarry Bank School had its own quarry down the end, down the end of the school field, which they filled in uh, eventually, because obviously it was dangerous. I think it was before our time the quarry was filled in. But I, I remember going to um, a fairground in the, in, with my Uncle Jack, so it must have been the end of the war, 45, 46, in, in, actually in the quarry. But uh, I don't remember seeing lumps of stone coming out of the quarry on lorries or anything, but of course the cathedral, Liverpool... Uh, Anglican Cathedral is built of, of uh, pink sandstone from Woolton and just about every every other house of any age around here has got lumps of Woolton sandstone in it. It's it's just part of uh, part of your bones, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things with the quarry that always <coughs> always amuses me now in this day of uh, you know health and safety regulations was. Um, Every year, the, 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 the Boy Scouts... We, we had a fete every year. As part of that, the Boy Scouts used to build a, uh, an aerial runway, as we called it. Yeah, not and, a zip wire. <laughs> no, it was like a zip wire, but we used to build it right on the edge of the quarry, which you can see oh, over there. So uh, the quarry was like an 80-foot drop, so you had this incredible feeling of being high up. When you, uh, What it was, it was big, long poles lashed together which made a, a, a tower at one end and we had a, a, a pair of shear legs at the bottom and a big rope over the top. It sounds terrifying. <laughs> it is, it was and uh, the thing was we had a breeches boy, you know, we had a, a chair on a pulley and we just pull it up to the top of the tower and then people just pay threepence or something they climb up the tower, sit in this thing, and we'd shove them off, and they'd whiz down the hill, and somebody would catch them at the Were you bottom. Strapped down or anything, or just sat on the chair, it's holding just like a little kiddie swing, you know, yeah. like a little kiddie swing. I've got a picture of Rosemary on one of these yeah. things coming whizzing. It was, it was quite. It must have been a good 20, 30 feet away from the edge, mind you. Oh yes, yeah. I know. But the thing was, is that it Didn't felt like it. Oh yeah, it felt. Like it, it, it was, <laughs> it's a difference between exposure and danger, you know. Yeah. But it's great. It was really, really good fun. I mean, they wouldn't possibly let you even. St- let public honour thing like that. They'd all been tied together by little lads. Yeah. <laughs> Pieces of string. You know? With reef knots. <laughs> oh, mind you, we were... I, I, well, I, I used to help construct that at one time when I was in the Scouts. And uh, I tell you, I'm still pretty good at knots. <laughs> My knots don't come undone. <laughs> so where we are is very close to where St Peter's Church fate was when you played there with the quarry Mont Rod. What are your memories of that? Well... Basically, it was the it was like carnival in Rio uh, for us, the the garden fete. There were two highlights of the year. One was bonfire night, and the other one was was the rose queen. And uh, not quite sure exactly how the quarrymen came to be uh, playing at the rose queen. There are several versions of the story. One that Pete Shotton's mother, I think, was probably responsible. She she mentioned it to Jack Gibbons, who was involved with the organisation and uh, said, how about the quarrymen? So uh, there we were. It was quite astonishing, really, because 
the, the main attraction actually on the afternoon was, was the police dogs, whereby some chap in a pair of uh, in, a, in a boiler suit and a large padded arm would run round the field and being savaged by Alsatians in order to put people like Lennon and the rest of us villains off from from uh, t- choosing a life of crime. Um, but uh, it started off um, over on Church Road uh, with a, with a row of lorries and. Uh, they had it. They had two routes. One, which they alternated. One went down Kings Drive along Halewood Drive up up Manor, Manor Road and back again. And the following year, it went round Lingstore Road. So this particular year happened to be Kings Drive. So anyway, as we were going down Kings Drive, my dad came out of the house with his camera and took a, a photograph of just about every float and every marching band in the in the whole parade because my sister was in a brownish so she's on a lorry as a in a brownie uniform i don't know bernie bernie doesn't feature on these i don't know why i don't know what what what, what you were you couldn't have been were you in the scouts at that time i don't think you could have been you must have i was 14 so you probably were no, only about I, I, I honestly can't remember what was doing i remember when you played in the field here yeah I remember seeing you on the platform and being around there. Well, I, I suppose I'd been ten, wouldn't I? Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. One one thing that, again, I was saying earlier that we, we spend a lot of time correcting people's view of history. Yes, we did play on the back of a lorry a little bit because we had no microphone or anything. Um, the audience, your audience, faded away as the lorry went past. Lennon had to sing in the afternoon and in the evening, so he wasn't going to ruin his voice by doing much singing on the lorry. But And then came back up here, and uh, we all walked up the... Or maybe the lorries even drove up the lane at the back there. So, as Bernie says, it was a permanent stage. A lot of people see Jeff Ryan's famous photograph and say, oh, yeah, they were playing on the back of a lorry. Well, that's not true. It was a permanent stage. And when my dad was official photographer to the Rose Queen in 1953 um, we still have some photographs from that which, which show quite clearly it was a permanent stage and it, it was faced with uh, sort of um, breeze, composite breeze blocky things which you can still see on people's front gardens front garden walls all the way around Walton I think they were J.W. Jones, the builders uh, they obviously uh, donated a few to the church and David Ashton in fact claimed, claimed he helped to build it but he must have been pretty young in 1953 he must have been about 8 or 9 years old he used to help out in one of the farms down by oh yes he did yes but he, he, he claimed he helped to, to um, he helped to uh, build the stage well I mean 1957 I was 14 so 4 years earlier Ten-year-old, you can have a ten-year-old and nine-year-old helping to build a stage. I don't know, but anyway, it was a permanent stage, and you can tell by looking at the the uh, the Catholic Church, the various features on St Mary's Church there, which which are visible in the trees on Jeff's photograph, and you can cite the stage pretty absolutely exactly if you know what to look for, because uh, we're up up here from time to time. Of course, now it's this Bishop Martin Primary School, so we can't go in there. But uh, when they do have something here, people are always wandering around looking clueless, saying, where did it actually happen? Well, it's pretty pretty easy once you know how to, to identify the spot 
very accurately. It's in the corner there, isn't it? I, yeah, just, I right, just over that hedge, actually. It's just yeah. over the hedge at the end there. So obviously you mentioned Jeff Ryan's, fa- Ryan's fam- famous photograph then, but there's another photograph, isn't there, that you've, you discovered much later that, that your yeah, dad had taken? Yeah, true, yeah. The BBC were doing a, a programme here in 2007 and uh, someone had discovered a photograph of John Lennon and uh, Nigel Wally in Lime Street and uh, it was taken by the the itinerant photographer who walked up and down Lime Street and uh, we met that chap here and the programme concluded with it was concluded with my saying and there must be some more photographs out there if only people knew what they were looking for (laughs) anyway, two years later in 2009 I was looking through a whole load of negatives of my dad's and lo and behold there was couple of photographs of the quarrymen on the back of the lorry in the procession and they had been there since 1957 so what's that 52 years and and they were in my own <laughs> in my own uh, office and so i think it probably makes sense to explain quite how many photographs you have that your dad took i mean we grew up with tea chests and tea chests of them in our loft so it wasn't just that you hadn't gone through a small box of photographs. Well, the surprising thing was that he didn't know it was there. Um, I'd asked Bernie, and who lived in Liverpool for a lot longer than me, he said, Dad had looked several times through all his negatives and, and so on and was quite sure he never had... He, oh, well, he couldn't find a photograph of, of the quarrymen. And what surprised me, that on the same strip of film was a photograph which I had seen which was really extraordinary. Well, I think the thing was, he, um, I think he, he, he didn't print that because in terms of a photograph, it's not a very aesthetic photograph. I, I, I think that's what he... Because, I mean, most of Dad's photographs, he, he did some absolutely beautiful photographs. And I, and I think it's you guys sitting on the back of the lorry... And I think you're pushing your spectacles up your nose. Yeah. Everybody's looking in different directions. It's, it's, it's not exactly a, a publicity photograph. So you think and that he didn't realise... Obviously then I wouldn't have realised the significance and just discarded it as not one of the well, best pictures on it. it didn't have there. any significance then. <laughs> yeah. it, it's only with hindsight that it has... Yeah, I think he probably thought, oh, it's not much good. Uh, we won't... Uh, I well, won't print it, you he know. For- certainly forgotten it existed. My sister is completely convinced that... There's, she's seen some photographs of us in in the garden at uh, in King's Drive, sitting on a bench or or standing on a bench. You know, like these American college films where you know the kids start a band and and uh, you know all starting standing around playing and and posing and looking suave. Well, we were fooling around doing that on one occasion, and uh, I'm Rosemary is quite certain that there were some photographs taken of that. But the other thing that happened was our next door neighbour was. Uh, a huge Liverpool fan. He had a red and white house and eventually he got a red car. Although this is not quite so relevant. He, 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 um, and one day, when I was about five, six years old, he said to me, Rod, have you got a, an autograph book? So I said, yeah. He said, go and get your autograph book. So uh, I did. He said, you've got to have this man's autograph. So I handed it over and the autograph came back, Bob Paisley. Because in um, in the summer when he wasn't playing football, he was a brickie and he used to go around building. <laughs> so he built Ratcliffe's next door neighbour's garage. Of course, his his son is the verger here, and uh, 
So our next door neighbours, the Ratcliffs, had a, had a son called Peter, who also went to Quarry Bank, which is a bit younger than us, and he was a very good runner. And his daughter is Paula Ratcliffe, the, the marathon runner. So in Paula's, in Paula's um, autobiography, she says, she mentioned that her, parents, her grandparents lived next door to us. And uh, on one occasion, the quarry men were rehearsing in the garden and their mum and dad started throwing pennies over the fence and that was the first money the quarry men ever earned, which is, is a good... <laughs> uh, they definitely threw money over, over the fence. I'm not sure they were throwing it to us or at us, but they, although it wasn't the first money we earned, but it's a good story. Do you so. remember those uh, tapes, the, the girls um, who lived next to Colin? Ah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah. That was quite a thing. Colin, Colin Hanton, yeah. Uh, the girls who lived next door to him had recorded the quarrymen practicing. And um, it must, was it in their garage or something? Uh, no, playing? they used oh. to bring the tape. They had a Grundig tape recorder, which they used to bring in to Colin's house next door. It was Geraldine Davis was the eldest sister. I can't remember what the younger sister was called. And they recorded the quarrymen quite a lot when I was with them and they also recorded it when Paul McCartney was with them. Many times Colin and I had said to each other I wonder what happened to those tapes because there's another story of a tape which we'll tell you later. Anyway um, they'd lost touch with the, with the Davises family, they were, the, they were Davises again but with an E, lost touch with them completely and then some, some years later Colin phoned me up and said You'll never guess what he said. I've just been contacted by Geraldine Davis. Her father's died and he's invited me. she's invited us to the funeral. So I said, well, I know it's a bit tactless, but if you get the chance, for God's sake, ask her what happened to the tape recorder. Anyway, he phoned me up a few days later saying, she's still got it. It's in the attic. So... So what are we going to do about it? Well, I live in London, so I phoned Bernie up, who was, knows, knows his way round a tape recorder backwards, and uh, sent him down there. And uh, she actually found... I think she... Did she find the original Grundig tape with the Grundig... Grundig... Um, the, 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 she, there, there were a number of tapes. Yeah, you tell us. Yeah, well, there were... There were I, I seem to remember there were about half a dozen tapes, and probably six-inch reels, something like that. And I'd, I'd borrowed a... a uh, a reel-to-reel machine that would work at the same speed and uh, I took it down took it round and uh, <laughs> it was really very exciting actually, we were both really quite excited to hear what was on this tape and uh, it was the black and white minstrels <laughs> um, oh, her dad had recorded over all these tapes and uh, <laughs> we, we, we took us a couple of hours and we went very carefully through all of them both sides and everything, and uh, there was not a single note of the quarryman at all. Um, yeah, it was all, all variety shows off the television he'd recorded. The other, the other recording, the other recording on the evening of the 6th of July, 1957. Uh, a fellow called Robert Molyneux, whose who's, uh, whose mum and dad ran the ironmongers at the bottom, just off the bottom of Church Road here. He was friends of mum and dad. He, he, he brought his Grundig tape recorder into St Peter's and recorded about the whole Quarrymen set. Well, you think, people seem to think that, you know, um, it was a... We, we opened the show for the band, you know, we were the... But no, we, we played the interval. I mean, this, this, this was a dance, a dance band, you know, where Walsh's quick steps and stuff like that. And if it was a cheap dance, you'd have records in the interval, which is why I still hate discotheques. 
but in in uh, not quite so cheap dances you used to have a scuffle group in the interval and people would jive to it anyway he recorded our entire set anyway he went off to join the police and uh, when when the Beatles became famous he tried punting this tape round um, oh, that's right. He he'd he'd recorded over ten of them. That was the, that was the sad bit. He'd recorded over ten, and there were two songs left: "Putting on the Style" and "Baby Let's Play House." Anyway, he apparently contacted Ringo for some reason, which Ringo wouldn't be interested at all. And uh, so he eventually just stuck it in a in a bank vault, and left it there till I think it was 1995. In 1995, uh, it was being sold at. Sotheby's or Christie's, I can't remember which one, and they released 20 seconds of it um, to publicise the, the the sale. And of course, you know, it was played all over the place. And I've played a number of times subsequently in the church hall, and the acoustics are are terrible. The the the, the music just disappears up and comes back at you at umpteen different angles. So talk about reverb, isn't it? Uh, so the recordings actually are are extremely rough but it's unmistakably John's voice. Anyway, it went for uh, £79,000. They did throw the tape recorder in, so that obviously made a bit of a difference. £79,000 in 1995, and it was bought by EMI. And a couple of years later, they, they set up this exhibition called 100 Years of Recorded Sound. Um, it, w- it was on in London, it was on in Edinburgh, and I went to see it in London, and there in this glass case was a tape rec- the tape recorder, and you could press a button and listen to this 20 seconds of the Quarrymen, of Lennon singing Putting on the Style. Um, that was bootlegged, of course. And uh, anyway, we wrote to the EMI saying, look, you know, we've got the guy, the drummer, still got his original drum kit, the banjo player still got his original banjo, can't you take Lennon's voice off, clean it up a bit, and we'll redo the backing for you, you know, which, of course, happened a few years later with the Free as a Bird. So it was my idea. Anyway, we had... Eventually, we got letter back saying, oh, the quality is no good, or blah, blah, blah. So we've tried several times since, and um, a couple of years ago, I had another go, and I was actually... I'm not so sure whether I'm supposed to tell you this, but I was actually allowed to hear the whole tape right the way through because they tried cleaning it up in 1990... just after 1995, but the technology then wasn't terribly good. And uh, they played us the... or played me the, the original tape... Uh, the, the cleaned-up version and the original tape. And the original tape's got a lot more interesting stuff and there's somebody saying you're a dancing girl and stuff like that <laughs> really very atmospheric uh, still terrible quality but what they could do with it now with today's technology would be astonishing you know we've given up hopes of any royalties on this thing but Beatles fans who know about it keep saying what's going to happen to this tape you know so it keeps saying well I think they're going to wait till we all die before they get it out I, I don't know why maybe Yoko has put her um, you know uh, what's the word? Um, not blockage. You know, may, maybe I was vetoed it because of the quality. But uh, it's such a shame. I mean, it's not going to ruin Lennon's reputation one iota. You know, uh, but it would, just, would be just fantastic to, to have the whole thing out there. And in, for, I think, 2007, Bob Harris did a, a one-hour program um, about the 6th of July. He had Paul McCartney on it. He had us on it, and he actually managed to play 20 seconds of the other recording baby let's play house john john gets confused with the words and indeed the tune but it's unmistakably baby let's play house so that's the that's the other famous recording so in 1997 uh, sorry 95 
that tape, 79,000 quid, was the most expensive recording ever. Subsequently, been beaten by Paul McCartney's, uh, you know, who, own, who owns um, That'll Be The Day and In Spite Of All The Danger. So the, the Quarrymen oh, yeah. are on both of the world's most expensive recordings, but I'm only on one of them. <laughs> OK, so we're stood in front of a very famous grave that often Beatles fans come and visit. It starts off, my dear husband John Rigby, who departed this life, and then about halfway down you can see also Eleanor Rigby. But, Rod, you were telling us that this isn't the Eleanor Rigby from the famous song. Well, having spoken to Pete Shotton about it, who was John's bosom friend, he said, well, apparently they got the name Eleanor from... Eleanor Bron, who'd been uh, acting in one of the films they were in, I can't remember which one it was, uh, and Rigby, they got the name Rigby from the, the, the name of over a shop in Bristol, apparently, which is where they were when they were writing the song. It's, a, it's uh, one of these things, again, that we quarrymen have to keep pointing out that, uh, alas, <laughs> things weren't quite so wonderful in those days. People expect when Lennon met McCartney... Uh, that there were angels poking out with trumpets from behind clouds and stuff like that. Well, it was a serious non-event. But uh, anyway, it gives a lot of people a lot of pleasure coming here to, to see Eleanor Rigby's grave. Um, somebody once asked me, oh, I expect John and Paul would have been practising their guitars round the gravestones, you know, and... Uh, I said to them, well, if Mr Price-Jones had caught him playing the guitar around here, he would have had him strung up. So, uh, I, and again, I can't imagine they were, they were uh, reading gravestones when they were here smoking behind the gravestones or having the odd illicit drink behind the gravestone, maybe, but reading gravestones, I find that a bit hard to believe. But there we go, as I say, it gives people a lot of pleasure, so there you go. Why should I, why should I spoil it? Dad, you were saying that your mum actually knew Eleanor Rigby. Yeah, yes. Um, I remember my mum saying that uh, uh, the song, uh, the woman in the song, was really quite a sad individual, and uh, Eleanor Rigby was really quite a jolly individual, and uh, it, it didn't match her personality at all. But of course, this is poetic license anyway, isn't it? If you're writing a song, you're writing a song and it has a life of its own and it doesn't have to relate to the original inspiration even though <laughs> going to Rod, this isn't the original inspiration anyway <laughs> so uh, uh, Do you know anything else? Did Grandma say anything else about her? I don't remember offhand um, One of the like I think Rod said earlier, our, our mother knew the family history of everybody in Walton going back about 150 years. She would have known every everything there was to know about Eleanor. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, uh, I can't remember anything she told us. So, um, what a shame. We've walked away from the church now, across Church Road, and we're at the church hall, which is where, on the 6th of July 1957, you played on the stage here with the Quarrymen. Yeah, that's right. Yes, this this was uh, this building was a very important part of our childhood, really. I remember having an argument with my mum wearing white socks. She sent me to Sunday school in this building wearing white socks, 
And I said, I can't go in wearing white socks, uh, sissy. So she said, right, take them off then. So outside that door there, I removed my socks and went into Sunday school with no socks. But this is where we played in, in 57. What had happened, we'd played on the, the field in the afternoon. Before that, we'd played on the lorry going around the village. And uh, we was used to play in the interval for the grand dance, tickets two and sixpence. And there was a band called the George Edwards Band that um, was playing, you know, Walsh's Quick Steps and all that kind of stuff, Fox Trots and things. And we were the we were the jam in the sandwich in the middle, um, hoping to wow the young ladies with our skiffle prowess. At some stage, however, came the famous interview between John and Paul, famous introduction, John and Paul. We were on a an American chat, chat show, it wasn't a chat show actually, on a Beatle convention, um, a, a Q&A, that was what it was, it was a Q&A, and they said to us, well now as we've got all of you guys together, because all of us that were here in 57 were on this uh, Q&A, you can tell us what really happened. So I was first in line, so I said, I, I don't even remember seeing Paul McCartney on that day. Um, I, don't, I wasn't there when they, they met each other. I must have gone home for me tea. So that obviously didn't cause a sensation or anything like that. So uh, anyway, they went through the others. They had various stories to tell. And so for the next time, um, I found myself in this situation. Tell us what really happened. So for a joke, I said, uh, I went for a pee, the most exciting moment in rock and roll history. My bladder let me down, which got a cheap snigger from the audience. You see, now that is now enshrined in rock and roll history that Rod Davis went to the toilet at the most exciting moment and there's an American guy done this acrylic painting a copy of which is on the wall in there and he, he emailed it to me and said um, you can see this is the picture there's you can see John being introduced to Paul with by Ivan Vaughan and all the rest of the guys in the group are there um, you're not in the picture but I put your banjo leaning on a chair because I was there when you told everybody you were in the bathroom at the time so you have to be very careful yeah, when you make jokes to blame for I've only one. got myself to blame for that one yes so we all tried to find out what really happened because various people had said in the past Paul had brought his own guitar cycled up from Allerton with his own guitar on his on his back well I didn't believe that for one moment somebody else had the brilliant idea that because Paul is left-handed, he took the strings off John or Eric's guitar and put them on the other way. Well, if you know anything about guitars, that's completely impossible because, yes, you can get the first string in the slot for the sixth string, but there's no way you can get the sixth string in the nut slot for the first string. So that was fantasy on somebody's part. Anyway, in 19... What was it? 2007, 1997, one of these... One of these anniversaries I saw this article in the Echo which said Paul picked up one of the guitars and played a right-handed guitar upside down he could play basic chords upside down and I thought that's what must have happened that makes sense to me and I phoned up the Echo actually got to speak to the reporter who wrote the article and I said where did you get this information from it actually sounds to me as though that's what really happened he said oh it came from Jeff Baker Paul McCartney's publicist that's what happened okay and that makes eminent sense to me I know I couldn't have been there because if I'd have seen somebody play a guitar a right-handed guitar left-handed I would have remembered that and then the other thing that people say is that um, 
Paul showed John how to tune a guitar. Well, John didn't need to be able to tune a guitar because John didn't play guitar chords. He played banjo chords and we had a pitch pipe. And it was perfectly simple to, to, to uh, tune, tune the instrument like a banjo, which he did. So the, the, way, the way some people write this up is that, you know, John was so incompetent he couldn't even tune a guitar until Paul McCartney turned up. I mean, we've been playing for at least nine months and it really gets, you can tell by my voice, it really gets me annoyed that people perpetrate this rubbish uh, when they've obviously got no idea of... They haven't thought about it. They don't know about it. They haven't thought about it. They don't know anything about guitar. So Paul turned the guitar upside down and he could play the basic chords to, to I think it was uh, 20 Flight Rock, I think. Um, and that's what got impressed John so much that later on that night he was walking home with, uh, with um, Pete Shotton and he said to Pete, what did you think of that uh, mate of Ivan's? And Pete said, oh, I think it's pretty good. John, do you think we should ask him to join the group? Unlike what Lennon said in later years, he did not ask Paul immediately to join because he thought it was so fantastic. No, it didn't happen that way. And so nobody got in contact with Paul. And a couple of weeks later, maybe 10 days or so later, Pete Shotton was walking out of his house and there was Paul McCartney cycling past on his bike, probably going to visit Ivan Vaughan, who lived along the road from Pete. And uh, Paul stopped and they started talking and, and Pete said to him, oh, by the way, we were thinking of asking you to join the group because it was always a group, never a band. And uh, Paul said... Uh, uh, yeah, OK then, <laughs> that was that. And that was the only time I actually met him between the 6th of July and the end of July. Um, the only time I remember practising at Aunt Mimi's house and I uh, turned up there and there was this lad there whom I hadn't met before and uh, I said, who's this? And Paul says, oh, it's... Uh, John says, it's Paul, he's come to hear us practise. Well, our friends would often come and listen to us practise because we could ask what they thought of the song, you know. And uh, so I don't suppose I exchanged more than two words with him maximum. By the 29th of July, um, school term had ended. John had left. Eric had left. I, I'd stayed on school into the sixth form, but we've got my dad's passport entering Boulogne, I think, the 29th of July. So I told Hunter Davis when he was writing the book about the quarrymen that I was at their Cavan performance on the 6th or 7th of August, but I wasn't. I was definitely in France at that time. But that's basically what what happened, so you can check that out if you ever get to talk to Paul. <laughs> but that's my understanding of what really happened. But, uh, and he also played the piano. There was a piano in there, and apparently he played the piano a bit. So have, you ever tried, have you tried doing that with guitar, playing the chords upside down? Is it hard to do? Uh, it's It's... Not difficult to do. No, the, the the problem is that you you hit the um, when you play it the correct way round, you hit the bass chords before the bass strings before the treble strings. So if you play it upside down, you hit the treble strings before the bass strings, and it's a bit weird. Yeah, I mean it can be done. If you've got to think that for a left-handed guitarist, the world is full of right-handed guitars. So if they want to have a go on somebody's super guitar, that's the only way they can do it really. Yeah. But um, somebody told me that they were they were in the in Paris when the Beatles were playing at the Olympia and John could pick Paul's guitar up and play chords upside down just as much as Paul could do to his so you know there you are that's it. So you met McCartney once but obviously you knew John Lennon pretty well. well. I knew John from when we were at Sunday school here from when we were five years old 
or I was five years old, he was probably six. And then, of course, at Quarry Bank School, I was in the same year as John, never in the same class, but in the same house, and I was in the same, ho- in the same classroom as John every morning and every evening for about 15 minutes, which is when he started passing this Daily Hell comic book around, you know. I was never a very close friend, but I was in, in his group, so I must have been fairly, fairly close, you know. What was he like? He was, um, I got on with him okay, possibly because we'd known each other since we were very small. But I, I use, when people ask me that, I usually tell this story. We were, we were at a Beatle convention in Nottingham, and uh, we were with Pete Shotton, and the, the Q&A bit came up, and the inevitable question, what was Lennon really like, you see? So Pete said, I'll tell you a story. We all pushed Pete to the front, and we stepped back. He said, I was in a pub the other week, he said, and this bloke came up to me and prodded me. He said, hey, I believe you were John Lennon's best mate. What was he really like? I, I, I heard he was a bit of a bastard. And a big gasp of horror went up from all these Beatles fans at this Beatle convention, you see. So Pete said, I said to this bloke, do you realise you're talking about my best friend, the man who with his music has probably made more people happy since the world began? and a big glow of appreciation came off from the audience. Pete says, yes, you're right, though. He's going to be a bit of a bastard. <laughs> we, all, we all fell off the stage laughing. <laughs> so he could be very unpleasant. But I, I, got a, well, I don't remember having any serious disagreements with him except when we were playing at the, the cavern and he wanted to play rock and roll. And uh, it didn't go down well with the audience, who's a trad jazz audience, you know. This is, the, this is the dreaded plaque, though. You've got to get Bernie to tell you about the plaque story. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can't really tell you much about this, I don't think. Uh, I don't know much about the, the, the plaque. Yeah, but the, your friend, your, a friend of ours, when we were here to unveil this plaque, a friend of ours said to me, Hey, Rod, um, I've got an interesting story to tell you. He said, I went round to dinner with a friend of mine some time ago, and this friend said, you'll never guess what I've, what I've got in my workshop. You'll never guess. And, and Bart said, well, come on, let's surprise me. So he took him into the workshop. He said, this is the plaque that's going to go up on St Peter's Church to commemorate the quarrymen playing. So my friend looked at it. He said, you spelt Rod Davis's name wrong. So the man says, oh, my God, I've been through so many books, every blinking book, to try and find how it's spelt. Of course, again, these, these errors are perpetuated. And uh, he got really, really upset because he tried so hard. Anyway, we, we came here and un- unveiled it, and the, 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 the cover unveiling it got stuck, so we had a big laugh about that. But so for the record, then, it's D-A-V-I-S, isn't it, without it the E? Yes, it's so D-A-V-I-S. We spell it regularly. Yeah. Well, I get mixed up with Rod Murray and people like that. Rod Murray was one of John's friends from from uh, Liverpool College of Art. So there's, you know, serious confusion happens. But uh, as I was saying earlier, people, uh, Americans particularly, think that, you know, there were angels peeping behind clouds, blowing, blowing trumpets and stuff when Lennon met McCartney. In fact, somebody we knew met somebody we didn't know, and which is why, probably why I can't remember anything about it at all. There's lots of stories about what John Lennon was like at school with playing tricks on teachers and things. Was that accurate? Well, some of the things he did were very good and very funny, and a lot of other things was just messing about. I mean, Pete Shotton and Eric Griffiths, the other guitarist in Quarrymen, said Lennon ruined their education because Pete Shotton was quite a smart guy. He, he was sent for the Margaret Bryce scholarship 
but unlike me, and, and I didn't get it either, which is just as well, because I wouldn't have liked to have gone to the Institute. Some of the stuff he did was very clever. The, the best one was probably the scripted teacher, McDermott. We, we used to call it, one, one year it was scripture, next year it was religious knowledge, next year they, they thought of a different name for it. But anyway, one of Lennon said to Schottner, vice versa, he's not going to be happy until he's got a complete class full of vicars. Pete's mother had a, a grocer's shop in Quarry Street, so they were scrambling around in the back of the shop and found these old Weetabix cartons, and they made 32 white dog collars out of cardboard from the Weetabix cartons and took them into school. So they, they handed them all out in McDermott's religious class, and they were waiting for the teacher to come in, and he came in, didn't look at the kids, and sat down and started marking the register, looking at his notes, and then he looked up and he saw 32, 32 vicars in his class, which was absolutely brilliantly funny and very clever. But a lot of the other things he did was just messing about, you know. We had a lovely old English teacher called Mr Greaves, whose nickname was Oscar, and he practically gave Oscar a, a nervous breakdown through messing about. He would just mess about, basically. And he said later on, you know, why didn't they recognise I was a genius at school? And I was a school teacher, so I would have said to him, look, I, I would have probably given him a thick ear, because you could in those days, given him a thick ear and said, look, sit down at the back of the class, shut up, I've got 31 idiots to educate here, just because you're a genius, I'm sorry. So I don't know what he expected to happen, but there you go. If you enjoy the podcast and want to help us grow and reach more Beatles fans, make sure you rate, review and subscribe to the Beatles City podcast.